My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So I'm delighted to be joined on this podcast by two people, Maïsafan Boulay and Hannah Martin, who have both joined us on this podcast because this week they were signatories to a letter calling for a movement behind building back better. And given that this podcast is exploring the question of what we want to do after the pandemic, we thought it would be fantastic to have them both on. So, first of all, Hannah, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How's the week been for you? Have you been doing a lot of stuff around this initiative? Yeah, it's been a busy week, I guess, because of the statement and, you know, the incredible number of groups that got behind it, over 350 civil society leaders and groups, but also with Boris Johnson's announcing himself as the next Roosevelt with a new deal and all this, it was quite a lot to respond to this week. So yeah, it's been a busy week. Yes, that was weird, wasn't it? That in the same week as you were getting that Build Back Better hashtag out there, Boris Johnson then appropriated the phrase. All over it, yes. He was all about building back better, build, build, build. You know, I don't know. In some respects, it's definitely a win if they are adopting the phrase, if they are adopting the sentiment uh, that we need to build back from this in a way that is better than the thing that we left behind. And so the fight moves from, if you like, landing the ambition to landing the substance. And what we had was the rhetoric, which was good, but we are a long way from the sort of recovery plan that we need if we are serious about the intent. Great. Well, I want to get to the heart of what you both see as being the kind of critical issues for us now. But the other thing to say is that this podcast is being released at the end of a week that the RSA has been hosting conversations here and actually around the world, bringing people together, our fellows, unlocking ideas and innovation around the possibilities of change after the crisis. So I guess we've been very much in that space as well. So I'm going to ask you in turn the question that we ask everybody on this podcast, but particularly asking you in relation to this Build Back Better initiative. So, Miasha, I'll start with you. What, for you, is the big idea that we need for the post-pandemic world? Good question. What's the truth? The truth is this is going to be won by a set of things, not one thing. But when one of the things that we in the Economics Foundation have been thinking really hard is, you know, there is a collection of things that we want to try and lock in the context of this pandemic. But if we had to choose one thing, what would that be? And for me, that is about a green recovery. And the thing that sits at the heart of that green recovery is, you know, to coin the phrase that the Prime Minister nicked from us, a Green New Deal, which is, you know, we've got to transition and we should be using our response to this crisis to prepare for the next big crisis. And if we get it right, it's not only the opportunity for us to go down and accelerate the pathway that we need to, but it also creates the opportunity to create tens of thousands of new jobs, to reconfigure our economy, and 
hopefully to drive living standards at the same time. So if I had to pick one thing, and there are quite a few things that we're trying to win in the context of this pandemic and the space that opens up for change, but that has to be the thing that we've got to get right. And of course, I've introduced you as being part of this Build Back Better coalition, but your day job is running the New Economics Foundation. And this issue of a kind of green economy is one that has been part of your argument and the argument of the foundation for a very long time. Yeah, it's at the heart of our DNA. So, you know, NEF has been around for a good 30 years. And in that time, we've been pretty consistent in a mission that tries to transform the economy. So it works for people and so it works for planet. So we've always been clear that, you know, we've got to try to live within environmental limits, but we have to do that in a way that is also completely cognizant of the need to improve people's living standards. So this idea of well-being and the planet is absolutely intrinsically linked for us. So Hannah, it's not just that Boris Johnson has nicked the phrase, he's actually nicked the name of your organisation because your organisation is Green New Deal UK. So I'm going to ask you the same question. It'd be interesting to know whether your answer is exactly the same as Miata's. But Hannah, what is your big idea for the world after the pandemic? I'm afraid I am going to have to say it's exactly the same as Miata's. I think that this moment that we're in now you know, this is a key intervention moment, but it's also a, a massive transformation of society. I think that we can push for economic and system transformations that felt impossible before. You know, who would have thought that we would have this particular government, this particular conservative government, underwriting the wages of tens of thousands of people and, you know, talking about moving away from austerity and towards a kind of investment-led proposal but I think, as Miata said, you know, what the actual New Deal did, you know, the actual FDR's New Deal was at such a scale and had such ambition around this idea of a new social settlement with public works programs. You know, in those days, the innovation was roads and, and big dams. But now the innovation has to be the complete decarbonisation and transformation of how we live. And that's really the only way we will survive. And I think that thinking in that holistic way where we think about what does a low carbon economy look like? Well, it looks like investing in care, in education, in things that are naturally low carbon in the arts, as well as building out our capacity to run ourselves on renewable energy and transform our public transport systems. And for me, the Green New Deal is the solution that is big enough and holds enough to meet the sort of interlinked crises of our time. We have an inequality crisis, we have a climate crisis, and now we have a public health crisis. And for me, something that speaks to the investment required to decarbonise, the investment required for our public services and the investment required in our well-being is the Green New Deal. And that's why it's my one big idea, for sure. So I'm really interested in the issue of kind of political coalitions, because Build Back Better is a political coalition. And now it looks as though this coalition might extend in towards the government. And one of the reasons I'm interested in that is that right at the beginning of lockdown, but the RSA, we looked at the relationship between crisis and change historically. We suggest that the critical determinants of the relationship between crisis and change are, was the demand and capacity for change before the crisis? Well, I think you can certainly say there was that in relation to responding to the climate emergency, to the Green New Deal. And then secondly, during the crisis, the demand grows, but also you see the future prefigured. There are things in people's attitudes, their responses, their experiences, their innovations, which point to the possible future. And then thirdly, and critically, and this I think was what went wrong after the global financial crisis, you have the political coalitions 
and the practical policy ideas and innovations ready to take advantage of that kind of greater openness to change, people's willingness to recognise that things have to be different. And it seems to me that it's that coalition point that's particularly interesting. And Hannah, my sense is that part of the strength of the Green New Deal idea is it does draw a broad coalition of people together in support. Yes, well, I think that the environment movement and the climate movement has come a long, long way in the decades since it sort of began. But it has suffered a bit from staying in a kind of technocratic, kind of scientific space, rather than speaking to things that people need and want from their lives and the things by which they like ascribe value to their lives. And I think that the central innovation of the Green New Deal is to speak about social inequality, economic issues and environmental and climate issues as one. And to say that, you know what, the fact that there are 11,000 people per year that die of fuel poverty in the UK, that is an economic issue. It's an issue of our housing, our poor quality housing. It's an issue of insulation. It's also an issue of climate. And we can solve it with a sort of approach that takes into account all of those different things. You know, there are loads of shovel-ready policies, that's a phrase that's flying around a lot at the moment, ways in which we could tackle the climate crisis. And those have been around for a very long time. But I think you're right to say that the political coalitions do need to exist in order for those to be picked up. I often quote, you know, I completely disagree with Milton Friedman on many, many points, but that phrase, ideas lying around, in a crisis, what can we prepare as a movement across progressive sectors, which will be picked up at the moment of crisis and, and be latched onto? And it seems like, you know, at least rhetorically, the government is looking around and being like, oh, New Deal, investment, build back better, and picking that up. But as Miata said, it's all about then locking it down and having the real ability to go into the detail and say, well, actually, what we mean by that is a real transformation of society and the economy and the way we run things. And having that sort of battle around what it means in practice is really going to be the next stage. So, Miata, the Build Back Better Coalition, the, the people who signed the letter that I think was in The Guardian at the beginning of the week, you know, that represents some kind of coalition, although I did have to say I recognised quite a lot of those names were associated with the IPPI Economic Justice Commission. Maybe I got that wrong, but there's a bit of a coalition. We've seen the government being part of this. I'm interested in, do you think that politically and as well intellectually, there's a case for saying, let's just Forget about many other demands that we might have, many other aspirations we might have, because if we get behind a Green New Deal, it does, as Hannah say, the logic of it will drag those other issues along with it. Or is there a danger that we accept a kind of consensus because it's you know, popular at the moment and we stop making the other arguments that we have to make? So I think that's a, I think it's a, it's a good question. I mean, for me... The thing that I found interesting in the process of seeing who would come behind that statement was that there was, you know, essentially an analysis that says there are these deep structural problems in our economy from the kind of inequalities that we've seen to the levels in which we have devalued some of our most important workers through to the neglect with which we have, you know, addressed issues, natural crises, whether it's climate change, whether it's a pandemic and responded as such. Yeah, it didn't matter which 
which organization you're reaching, whether it was business, whether it was trade unions, whether it was civil society, the charities, grassroots groups, there was a sort of resounding acceptance of the analysis. And I think you're seeing that across the political spectrum. For me, what is really interesting in this moment is that it's not so much a politics of left or right. It's like a new consensus is being formed. And part of the reason it's being formed is because I think the pandemic is shining a massive spotlight on a whole set of things. It kind of doesn't matter where your politics are or your value system are. There's a sense that it's just wrong and it needs to change. And that's the thing that I think we need to capitalise on. And I think that's the thing that will propel change if we get it right. And so, you know, how we move from here, I think, is the key thing. And what, for me, was quite powerful about the statement and all those voices is that there will be 101 different interests and demands and priorities that they each had. But across the piece, over 350 organisations, business, trade unions, civil society saying, you know, we don't only need to build back better. But what that means is, you know, protections through investing in vital public services that we need that sort of tackle some of the vulnerabilities that we've seen. It means tackling inequality between people and places. And part of that is the creation of good jobs, particularly against the backdrop of unemployment. And it means preparing in a way that we did not prepare for this pandemic for the bigger crisis of climate change. And getting That many interests saying, yeah, it's those things, I think is a huge leap and I think speaks to the moment. And so the question now becomes, how do we crystallise that into a set of things that we can collectively push for that actually results in the kind of change that we want to see? And that's where often things can get difficult. It's easy for us to agree what we don't like and easy for us to agree, broadly speaking, what we want. But then when we get into the detail of policy, it becomes more challenging. So Hannah, Starting with you, if people are observing this debate and hearing Boris Johnson saying what he's saying, Michael Gove quoting Gramsci at the weekend, mind you, he's quite prone to doing that. How would we know whether this is authentic? You know, if I'm an alien arrived from space and I'm listening to all this and I want to know whether or not I should believe it when people say that they're committed to a Green New Deal, what would be the things you would tell me to let me know whether it is real? Well, I mean, the thing about what happened this week with Boris kind of using the frame of the New Deal is that was essentially repackaged money. It wasn't any new money. Lots of organisations came together earlier this year to suggest that we needed to invest at least £25 each year for the next three years of new money to meet our 2050 net zero goal, which is, you know, legislated. And many people believe in different ways that that is not fast enough to account for our kind of historic responsibility and the emissions that we've created globally and worldwide. So, you know, that is like five times as much as what was promised yesterday when yesterday wasn't even new money. So I think, you know, to make it real, you need an investment-led approach. You need something that looks like a real fiscal plan for how we transition. I think for us, a Green New Deal is sort of tested by the experience that local communities have of it. So, you know, is it something that creates new good jobs? Is it something that invests in communities that are underinvested in? Is it something where 
people can have a stake in it? Is it something that looks at how, you know, we can transform our economy so that financial systems serve the needs of people? Is it something that protects and restores vital habitats and carbon sinks and sort of respects natural ecological limits? And for us as well, a key part of the Green New Deal, which is a sort of, I I would say, a kind of modern reworking of the New Deal is that, you know, we have to make sure that as we decarbonise, We also do our fair share to tackle climate breakdown by supporting communities, particularly those in the global south who we've previously exploited. So for us, you know, decarbonising quickly and fairly in line with science, but also sharing resources, sharing technology and acknowledging our own sort of historic responsibility, really, as a country. So for us, those are some key tenets of what we would want to see from a Green New Deal. I think from, you know, the recovery we need to be looking at things like what's a minimum income? Could we do some big projects? You know, could we create a national social care service, our social care crisis, but also that's invested in a low carbon way of working? There are other kind of big ticket policies that you'd want to see. But I think for us, it's more important to talk about, you know, principles under which you see a Green New Deal flourishing. Miasha, I'm interested in your perspective on whether there are particular things which for you will show whether or not what the government is saying is authentic? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think the first basic thing they need to do is actually commit to a substantial investment programme. So, you know, we think that a minimum of 20 billion is a sort of fiscal stimulus that we should be thinking about, but that needs to be geared towards low carbon investment. So that's both in terms of technology, but it's in terms of energy, renewable energy, public transport, but also thinking about how we invest in low carbon sectors like social care. That's the baseline. They need to get that right first and foremost. I think the second piece for me is then, you know, we are looking against levels of unemployment we've not seen for 25 years. You know, the Office for Budget Responsibilities, original projections of a 2.1 million increase in unemployment probably look optimistic. We're probably heading into bigger numbers than that. And so we very, very quickly need a plan for jobs. And for me, that is about trying to create jobs in the sectors that we're investing in, so green jobs. But it's also about thinking, you know, those that are going to be unemployed, how do we begin to very quickly retrain them, upskill them, and then how do we match them with jobs that are being created? And then for those that will fall through the cracks, we've got an absolutely woeful social security system that's been denuded over 10 years. It is now at its lowest level, if you think about you know benefits as a ratio of earnings, the lowest level across OECD countries, but in our own post-war history. And that was never right. But now, absolutely, when so many millions are going to be reliant on it, we've got to beef up that system. And our view is that we should be thinking about a minimum income protection, a minimum income guarantee, just to provide a safety net. And if you can combine that with training and job creation, we have a chance of weathering this in a way that pivots us to something better. If we don't, it will be an absolute disaster. And Mietra, you know, I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that you run NEF and that NEF has been a beacon for alternative economic thinking for a long time. But you're very happy to be co-signing a letter with big businesses and finance. And it sounds as though you think that there is a route to a sustainable recovery using, I mean, yes, of course, public investment and new policies. But I'm not hearing from you the idea that, for example, we need to abandon growth. So in a sense, are you accepting that there is a kind of mainstream economic way of getting us the recovery you want and tackling the climate emergency? Or or would you be encouraging us to think 
more outside the box? Well, I think we're already starting to think outside the box. So the thing that's really interesting for NEF is that, you know, we've always been, if you like, an outlier. The thing that someone said to me when I first started to run the organization is that, you know, NEF was the organization that threw in ideas that in 10 years became the mainstream. And I think the thing that I've seen over the last five years is that actually both our analysis, you know, the the phrase the economy isn't working for people, the phrase the economy isn't working for planet is like second nature now, it's mainstream. For a long time, that was a pretty radical outlier idea that we'd been pushing for a long time. So I think the mainstream has shifted and it's had to shift as there has been increasing awareness of the scale of the climate emergency facing us, but also against the backdrop of 10 years in which living standards were pretty much stagnant. And so one of the things for us is there are some wins that we need to lock, but in part of that, we're hoping we can open up a debate about the kind of economy we want on the other side of this. So, you know, If you take something like growth, I don't really want to have a completely abstract debate about whether we have growth or not. What I care about is the extent to which, where if there is growth, it has a material impact on people. And what we saw in the last 10 years after the financial crisis is the economy grew and it did not benefit people. It didn't translate into wage increases. It didn't translate into living standards increases. So it becomes a bit of a no-brainer. What is the point of pursuing growth if it doesn't make people better? You win the argument by just the sheer logic of it. And so that shifts you into the frame of thinking about, well, actually what matters is well-being. What matters is actually social economic impacts on people and their lives and their livelihoods, because actually that's what the public cares about. That's what the politicians cares about. So the debate is already changing because, in my view, the contradictions in the old model are already being shown. And the fact that we are talking about building back better and big change is a function of the fact that the model that we had before that yielded 14.5 million people in poverty, that yielded the levels of in-work poverty that we've seen, that's yielded the levels of wealth inequality we've seen, is being exposed. It was being exposed before, and it's being exposed doubly so in the pandemic. And so can we lock in a new consensus that then creates a pathway by which we can then think about a radical transformation of our economic model? Hannah, you used that phrase and you kind of, I think, kind of chuckled when you used it of shovel ready because it's become such a cliche. But I wonder, do you think that even though we're seeing what seems to be a new consensus and and we're kind of prodding and poking it, but it is very good news in the sense that just a few weeks ago, there were people saying that you can forget Green New Deal. All the government will want to do is get the economy moving on any terms at all. So that worst fear seems to have been misplaced. So, you know, it is good news. But nevertheless, do you think that people, ordinary people, yet understand the scale of change that is going to be, you know, required, that we're going to have to, what, change the boilers in almost every house in the country, that probably we aren't going to be able to go back to the levels of aviation, although it seems sitting here in Clapham and listening to the planes flying over, we've done that already. So, you know, I interviewed David Wallace-Wells for this podcast a few weeks ago, and I think someone like that who writes with incredible passion about what's already happening, one of the things he wants to get across is how dramatic the change has to be. Do you think even now, do you think we get it? I think it's difficult sometimes to imagine what it could look like to live in a world that didn't have to tackle climate change anymore because we've done it. I think it is difficult to imagine that because so much of the current economic normal is predicated upon kind of an extraction-based economy. However, you know, 
I think there's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says this thing where she's like, we can only be what we have the courage to see. And I think seeing a future and, and being able to describe that to people and make the case for it in terms that they understand around, yes, a new boiler might need to be installed. Also, your fuel bills need to go down and your wages need to increase. And we want to move to a model where people have more time to spend with their families and better opportunities to volunteer in their local community because they're not having to work, you know, 50 hour weeks or work three jobs just to get one decent wage. You know, I think one of the things that I reflected on quite a lot after the Gilets Jaunes grew up in France was, you know, if we don't, as a climate justice movement do a good job of telling the story and explaining the vision for what the world could be, we really do run the risk of disenfranchising people for whom the world is already a difficult, hard, unfair place. Like Miata said, you know, the trickle down economic norm has not worked. People are not experiencing growth. Certain parts of society are experiencing huge amounts of growth and huge amounts of wealth, but most people aren't. And so I think we have to do a job through the next decade of, yeah, painting a vision and telling that story of what it could look like. I mean, sometimes I struggle to imagine what life will look like, but I think as much as focusing on the loss of certain things, I think it's more focusing on the the potential we have to live in a fairer, more sustainable world in all senses. Mehati, can I finally go back to this question of coalition? Because part of my analysis of why we didn't get progressive change after the global financial crisis, apart, as I say, from some relatively technical changes in relation to banks and finance, was that there was a split. And it was a split between the dynamism of the Occupy movement, the 1% movement, which was youthful and dynamic and attention-grabbing, and arguably social democratic parties around the world that were either exhausted by trying to cope with the crisis, as in our own country, or kind of flat-footed in the face of that radicalism. And arguably that split between the kind of soft left, centre-left and the more radical left then continued to kind of scar the progressive movement for the years after that. And we see it in the split between you know Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton or between the Corbynites and others in the Labour Party. And in, to an extent, we continue to see those kind of schisms between liberals and radicals playing out in relation to elements of identity politics. How confident are you that we can create the broad-based coalitions that seem, I think, historically to be vital to achieving major change? A million dollar question. You know, it has always been the kind of downside risk, I think, of progressive forces that uh, rather than uniting, we fragment over the most bizarre things because there is always more that unites than divides. And yet too much focus is on the things that divide. My hope is that it's the scale of the moment. You know, the thing that we are going through blows the financial crisis out of the water, both in terms of the scale of the economic impact, but the reverberations on the real economy and on people's lives. 
And I hope that becomes a galvanizing force that focuses the minds and forces unity. And actually, the fact that we're having the debates that we are, you know, the fact that we have a conservative government that, you know, whether it's bluster or not, you know, are talking the language of Build Back Better, are talking about the need for a radical shift in the economy and a new deal, for me, suggests that there is something that is shifting and something that's happening. And I think, you know, the, the onus and the duty is for those of us that can and have the appetite and the will, we've got to reach out, we've got to form alliances, we've got to work with others, we've got to put organisational boundaries and territories and all of that nonsense to one side, because it's not just about the scale of the thing that we're trying to fight against and how devastating and grim it will be and it is being for so many people, but it's also the opportunity for the kinds of change that you only get after these moments of crisis. So, you know, when we see paradigm shifts, whether it was after the Great Depression going into the Second World War, it was a post-war settlement, even the Thatcher Revolution came after moments of really difficult economic challenges and traumas. But for us to capitalise on that, so it takes us on a positive pathway rather than a negative pathway, and there's a very negative pathway that can come out of this, it does require progressive forces to recognise the depth of the moment, to have humility in that moment, and to be willing to work across boundaries in order to try and secure some of the changes that we think we can. Hannah, if people want to know more about the Build Back Better Coalition, where should they go to find out more? Well, if they want to take action, they go to buildbackbetteruk.org. And if they want to sign up to the statement as an individual or an organisation, they go to buildbackbetter.org.uk, which is confusing. (laughs) But there are kind of, yeah, two ways in which people can kind of take action in different places. So definitely check it out. Well, Hannah and Miata, thank you so much. It's been a brilliant conversation, a great way to mark the end of a week of conversations we've been having at the RSA about how we build a bridge to the future. See, at least we've got our own little phrase there that distinguishes us now. Everyone's talking about build back better. (laughs) Good luck with all your work and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.